he's praying one day, and all of a sudden, he, you know, Jesus basically appears uh, and has some stuff to say to John. and says, John, I want you to write this down. And the first thing that Jesus starts out by saying um, is there's seven churches in the providence of Asia Minor, and Jesus has something to say about two, um, all seven churches. And as he starts to say them, he says, okay, John, I want you to write this down um, to the angel or to the leader. And some people think that means angel, angel. Some people think that means elder, pastor. Um, but either way, I want you to write this to the leadership of the church, um, to each of the different churches that I have a message for in this particular province. And as he says them, um, of the seven letters, there's four of them that are a mixed bag. There's four of them that are, you know, some positive and some negative. There's two of them that are all positive. One of those we're going to read today. Um, and there's one of them that's all negative. Now, collectively, we just took a church survey um, to kind of help us figure out where we are. But one thing that would be absolutely true is if Jesus spoke um, today... He would have something to say to us, and he would probably have some encouragement, and he would probably have some, some conviction, some points for us to get better at. Um, and what's interesting is all of us, you know, kind of think, man, what would God want to say if he could talk to me today? Now, this is a little bit of a difficult uh, question to answer because, you know, at some point you're thinking, yeah, I would love to hear what Jesus thinks. Some of us are like, I don't want to hear what Jesus thinks. I know what he would have to say. It's kind of like, you know, it's like asking your boss, so what do you really think of how I've been doing? It's like... Well, if you really want to know, you know, what we really want to know is tell me all the good things I've been doing and tell me like one or two things I can work on. Because I don't really want to know all the bad. But Jesus would say, here's some good things and here's some bad things. And the bad things aren't to say that you're bad or that I hate you or that I don't love you. It's to say, I want you as a church to be a holistic reflection of who I am. Now, um, the letter that we're going to read today is to a church called Smyrna. Um, Smyrna actually kind of meant in the Greek that the, the incense or, the, or, the, or the, um, what you might have heard of in the Bible as myrrh. It was a type of, uh, of basic, um, the word escapes me right now, but when Jesus uh, was born, you might remember that there was some you know, frankincense and myrrh. Well, myrrh was from Smyrna. Smyrna was a pretty rich city. It was a pretty big city um, that Jesus is writing to. But the thing is, is as Jesus is speaking this to John, John's writing this to this church at Smyrna, um, the church is facing some persecution. The church is facing some persecution um, that we have not experienced before, nor will many of us probably ever experience. But the church, nonetheless, is facing some persecution. And Jesus is basically going to say, you're going to continue to face some persecution. And so he has some encouraging words to say to the church of Smyrna this morning about persecution. But here's where I think we fall into this whole thing as we get started together. We don't face persecution very often. But when we do, when we do... We most oftentimes run from it as opposed to face it. In fact, if we're being honest, for many of us, the reason that we don't face persecution isn't because there isn't persecution to be faced. It's because we aren't living as Christians lives that would in any way, shape, or form draw persecution. Because we don't want to say anything, and we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want anybody to feel like their toes are stepped on. Because we just want to be nice people. And you should be a nice person. But what's interesting, what's interesting, is as we look into this idea of persecution, I was thinking this week, I was like, you know, we just don't face that a ton. But here, here's kind of the thing that I was thinking about. The church at Smyrna, um, that, that, that church, like any big city, in fact, the movement of God in, in the early days, in the early church, was primarily a city movement. That means that they 
uh, operated a lot of times in the urban context, not as much in the rural context. And the strategy of the early church was to go to cities and plant churches. But in the city, like any city, was a diversity of thoughts, was a diversity of ideas, was a diversity of religions, just like there is today. And the thing that was distinct about the Christians is everybody, regardless of what God that you believed in, had to acknowledge that the Roman emperor was also God. The Roman emperor, why this is happening, is probably Diocletian. Diocletian? And you had to acknowledge that he was God. But Christians were distinct and different in that they would say, we love you, but he ain't God. We appreciate you, but he ain't God. In fact, what we believe, they would say, is that God our Father, Jesus, is the only one true living God. And no one gets to the Father, God the Father, except through the Son. That there was this fundamental belief that you and I are incapable of gaining a right relationship with God on our own accord, through our own merits and through our own works. In other words, none of us can good person ourselves into God's good graces because he is too holy and I am too corruptly sinful. I was talking to somebody this week, actually, who they were talking about, you know, kind of some mistakes that they had made, some things that they had been through. And as we were talking and discussing, they said, you know, I, you know, I, the Jesus, the whole God, the whole, that, that sounds fantastic, but... but but if that's all true, there's no way I'm getting in. I've done too much. In fact, they said, I think the words were, I've been too much of a scumbag my entire life to get in. And here's the difference. Religion would tell you that be a good person, go to heaven. But Christianity is the opposite. It's in the realization that I am not a good person. It's in the realization that I fundamentally, to the core, am sinfully corrupt. And even if I wasn't corrupt to the core, just the fact that I have sin in me and around me and continuing through me, that I know what the right I ought to do, but I don't do it, and God in his perfection and his holiness cannot have sin and imperfection in his presence, and no matter how much I good person, I can't good person my way into God's good graces. And so God sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world. And it's our belief as Christians that the only way to the Father is through the Son, Now, let me tell you why that's offensive. Because the implication of that is exclusivity. The implication of that is there is no other way to the Father except through the Son. And we live in a culture, good or bad, that says make no negative evaluations and have no systems of exclusivity. Make no negative evaluations and make no notions of exclusivity. And, and, and here's the thing. This isn't like saying that there's a negative evaluation about you. This is a communal realization that we all have a negative evaluation about ourselves. That we all are sinful. That we all are corrupt. That not a darn person in this building this morning is good enough to stand in the presence of God. In fact, you find, you find John, who in the book of John, in the gospel of John, is sitting there with Jesus when Jesus is in the flesh before he dies, lays his head on the Savior's chest. And as he's laying his head on the Savior's chest, can hear the heartbeat of the King and Savior of the world. And John sees him in his glory in Revelation chapter 1 and falls over as if dead. Because none of us, when we see God in his glory, will able, be able to, on our own accord, stand, stand in front of him. And it's our belief that God saw that, sent his one and only son into the world, claimed some audacious claims that he was, in fact, the Savior, did what no one thought he would do. Because everybody thought that you know, when, when the Savior shows up, when the Messiah shows up, he's going to return the nation of Israel to his place of military and political prominence. And then he died. 
Anybody thought, guess we got it wrong. Until he showed back up. Holy Spirit comes down. As the Holy Spirit comes down, Peter stands up, gives a sermon. A couple thousand people get, you know, d- decide to place their faith in Jesus. The church starts. And what we read today happens at about 60, 50 to 60 years after the beginning of the church. So Jesus is basically saying, hey, there's some things that I need you to know. There's some things that I want you to understand. There's some persecution that you're about to face. And church, let me just tell you. If we stand for Jesus, simply the implications of our belief makes negative evaluations, and does not open itself to extraordinary inclusivity. It says we're all sinners. We've all messed up. None of us can stand before God. And it's only through Jesus. Let me just tell you, the Bible says it very well. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution of many kind. Just is what it is. So Jesus, seeing this church that, again, has faced a persecution that we will probably never face, has some words of encouragement in light of what they're about to go through. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 2. Start at verse 8. Revelation 2, 8. And to the church of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, a couple things about this. One, this is basically an introduction to Jesus saying, hey, this is Jesus talking. But in doing so, this is very, very, very intricate and loving and detailed by God. Now, I want you to imagine that you're being persecuted right now. That you not just, you know, man, I, you know, Betsy got a raise over me because I'm a Christian. I don't think they like Christians in my office. Now, this, is like, this is like real, real face death type of persecution. He says, here's what I want you to know. I'm writing this to you. I know you're getting persecuted. But before I even start, I want you to know that I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and I am the end. And I know all of the in-between. Not only that, but the one who's writing to you has died and has come back to life. You are not facing anything that I did not face first. You are not going through anything that I did not go through first. I am both in control and have been through what you are going through. So before I even tell you what you're about to face, before I even encourage you in your faith, I want you to know that I know, and I've been there. I know, and I'm in control, and I've been there, just like you. Verse 9. I know your, tri- your, your tribulation and your poverty. But he says, but you are rich. I know your tribulation. I know the heartaches that you've been through. I know the, the, the unjust things that you have been through. And I know, that you're, I know your poverty. Now, when he says poverty, we read poverty and we kind of think, you know, different, different things. This is abject poverty. This is the word that in, in the Greek describes this level of poverty is complete abject poverty. This isn't like Project Pat, you ride clean, but your gas tank is on E type of poverty. This is like you have incredible poverty. You can't, not, not just can't pay your bills. You don't have bills to pay food to eat. In contrast, in a city that had extraordinary wealth because of the murder that they produced. In other words, the Christians in a city of riches, of affluence, face all kinds of persecution financially. And not just not the job, not the raise. We're living an impoverished life. He said, but you are rich. In other words, you don't understand You think what you have here right now makes you rich. That doesn't make you rich. In fact, in in a couple of weeks, when we were at the church of Laodicea, they got everything wrong. 
Revelation 3.17, Jesus talked to the church at Laodicea, and he says, basically, you think because you have money, because you're rich, you think you have everything. You don't realize you're poor, broken, destitute. Jesus says, come on. First off, I just want you to, I want you to, I want you to understand that your context is not how it seems. Though you might feel poor, you really are rich. He says, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. <laughs> you talk about a negative evaluation. My man just pulls the trigger on this one. Like, like we say a lot of stuff and maybe you're offended. Like, I've never, and by the way, if you believe that you're a synagogue of Satan, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. You know, that's, but he says, so, so here's the deal. And this is fascinating. Not only were they, not only were they facing persecution um, from the Roman Empire, not only were they facing persecution in a financial sense, not only were they facing persecution in a physical sense that at this point in the time, this is post-Nero. This is after Christians have begun being, being fed the lions, begun being lit, lit on fire. This is after the persecution where Christians are hung and lit on fire to light the knife as Nero would watch. This is like a couple decades after that when persecution is just starting to get rampant in the, in the Roman Empire. He says, and here's the problem, even the, the, the folks that are supposed to be religious, even the folks that should identify with you, even the Jewish folks who are like your cousins, even the Jewish folk who, if anybody would understand persecution, you would think it would be the Jewish people are slandering you. It's not just the outsiders, it's the insiders as well. You see, for some of us, we might face physical persecution. We might face financial persecution. We might at some face that sometimes face some type of slanderous persecution. But very few of us will ever face all three at the same time. And so in light of that, here's what Jesus would say to the church who is. To the church who all at the same time Facing it from outsiders, facing it from insiders, living in destitute lifestyle, and at the same time being persecuted, possibly killed for their faith. Verse 10. He says, so do not fear. Do not fear. Now here's something interesting about that. Do not fear is the most consistent, it's the most frequent command in the Bible of everything else. And the Bible has some, some interesting commands if you look through it, you know, there's, there's in fact, it, got some, it has some, a dichotomy of weird commands. It's like, do not murder. Do not, you know, sleep with your friend's wife. Sing. <laughs> you know, do not commit adultery. Do not, you know, go and lie. Do not bear false witness and sing. You know, and then this, he also says, hey, so here's what I want you to do. Do not fear. Now, we don't describe things in terms of fear these days, if, if you're with me. Not a lot because it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, uh, Nobody wants to admit that they're afraid. Um, but here's what we have that's pervasive in our culture. And this isn't a condemnation on that. If, 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 if this is you, this is just kind of the reality. That we don't have fear. We don't describe it as fear. We describe it as anxiety, worry. So Jesus looks at it and says, don't worry. Now, if you are an anxious person, let's be honest. The worst thing that anybody can say to you is don't worry. You know, it's like if you tell somebody that has anxiety, don't worry, then they worry about the fact that they're worrying, which makes them worry more. And you're like, great, I appreciate the advice this morning, Jesus. You know, so glad I came to church. Don't worry. Well, I'm worrying. Dang it, I'm worrying that I'm worrying. And so I'm worrying even more. So what do I do? So Jesus says, hey, don't worry. Don't worry. Do not fear. And here's what was fascinating. When we say do not fear, we say don't worry. I think FDR has the quote, do not fear for there's nothing to fear except for fear itself. <laughs> and Jesus looked at him and says, do not fear, but, but there's a lot to fear. 
Do not fear, but I want you to know that the fear that you have is substantiated, which is different for us because most of the times when we tell somebody don't fear, it's because we say that there's not anything to fear. It's like our little daughter, Ava. She's almost two years old now, and she's a little cautious Kathy, man. Like, like, there are things that she does that, like, it's like there's, like, she'll be, like, walking, and there's, like, a pillow on the ground, and, like, the two-year-old side of her wants to, like, step on the pillow, but the cautious Kathy side of her, like, wants to, like, touch the pillow first, and you're like... Just jump on the pillow, man. You're two, just like do you, you know? And she'll like walk up to it and she'll touch it, you know? And as a parent, we're on to say like, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And Jesus looks at the church and says, hey, don't be afraid. But there's a lot to be afraid of. It's not that there's nothing to fear except for fear itself. There's a lot to fear because there's a lot of people that want to do a lot of harm to you for what you stand for. He says, but do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. <laughs> well, Jesus, wouldn't it be better if you said what you may suffer? Jesus said, no. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days will have tribulation. Now, debate around what that 10 days means. Some people think that means a 10-day period, like a literal 10-day. Some people think it means 10 years. Some people thought it meant for the 10 you know, consecutive rulers of the Roman Empire. There's a lot of different thought. But he says, you're going to face some tribulation and you're going to be thrown into jail for it. Now, pause. Our jail is not the same as their jail. Our jail, hopefully, is designed around the idea of rehabilitation and restoration. We, you know, you did something, you, gotta, you, know, you did the crime, got to do the time, hopefully you're going to learn your lesson, hopefully you'll come out on the other side as a productive member of society. For them, jail was almost always to wait at trial to almost always see if you were going to be executed. So when he says, some of you guys are going to be thrown into jail, this isn't like, oh man, I'm going to be on house arrest, dang, i got to wear a little anklet and wear jeans the whole time. For them, it means, hey, you're about to face persecution. And you're about to get thrown in jail. And when you get thrown in jail, it's not just a jail. You're going to get thrown in jail to possibly await your death. But you know what's fascinating about the early church? There was a faith so deep. There was a conviction so real. There was a faith so strong that they stood in the face of death and did not flinch. But as you go through and you read about early church history, one of the things that was magnetic about the early church when the persecution started of all the Christians is Christians oftentimes, not everyone, they didn't have a perfect recognition, but Christians oftentimes would walk into the Colosseum, about to get eaten by an animal. And they walked into it, singing, praying, and not fearing. That there was a faith so strong, it could look at imminent death in the face and not flinch. In a non-believing world, flooded to find out were drawn in by the hundreds and the thousands to find out who in the world can be that convinced of something or someone. Because there was a faith so strong, it stood in the face of death and did flinch. And Jesus looked at him and said, so don't fear. Don't fear. Yeah, you're going to face this. Yeah, for your belief, you're going to face this. 
In fact, you're going to be thrown in jail. In fact, let me just tell you, it's not even a question. It's just going to happen. But don't fear, and this is why I want you to not fear, as he continues. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, two types of crown. There was a king's crown and there was a victor's crown. There was someone who won like an athletic event and there was also a bride's crown, um, which is also along that, that, that same type. And basically what he's saying is here, I want you, um, when you die, you are going to get a crown. And this crown is not a, it's not a king's crown. It's not that you were born into. It's not that you were entitled to. This is a crown that you get because you have finished victoriously. This is, and he kind of parallels these two ideas of crown here, that the bride of Christ has and the overcomers of Christ has. Now, this isn't a way that we would earn our way into God's good graces because we We are all conquerors. We are more than conquerors, in fact, the Bible says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the idea is, when you die, or when you face death, or when you face persecution, I want you to have the realization that this life is not your reward, as rewarding as it might be. This life is not your reward. This life is not your ultimate goal. This life is not your ultimate resting place. There is a life, there is a place, there is a kingdom that will so far out pass this one don't you dare lose sight of that because of what you're facing see God was a God who understood and he knew that he knew that for anybody for everybody whenever we're facing any kind of a thing any kind of persecution something innately inside of us that the world begins to revolve around us and all we can see is what's right in front of our face and Jesus says come on you just got to see this This isn't the end. This isn't the end. There is something so much bigger and so much greater than what's happening right here. He continues and he says this, verse 11. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. (laughs) Now for us... We kind of culturally all stand back and say, Jesus, I don't know if you heard about this, but there's this thing called YOLO, uh, and you only live once. You can only die once. Jesus looking at him and basically saying, you might die once, but when you see God in his glory, you do not and will not have to spend eternity in a second death, separated in eternal separation from your heavenly Father. And so when you're persecuted, don't lose sight of that. When you're persecuted, don't lose sight of that. When you're you're persecuted, don't lose sight of the fact that everything might be here and everything might be right now. And I love how he just interweaves constantly saying, I know. In fact, depending on your translation, throughout those first couple verses, he says, I know the trials that you're facing. I know the persecution. I know that you live in poverty. I know that you have faced all kinds of slanders from Mark. In other words, hey, I want you to know that I know because if we're all just being honest, when you're going through anything, the first thing we all think is, does God even know? Is God even there? Does God even care? And Jesus stands at the beginning of the chapter and says, hey, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that I am the beginning and I am the end. I know everything in between. And I have gone through what I expect when, I, when I'm calling you and asking you to go through the exact same thing. That I have died and I have come back to life. And I want you to know in the middle of it, I know. This isn't catching me off guard. This is not catching me by surprise. But when you're going through that, I want you to not lose sight that this is not the end. I do not want you to lose sight that this isn't the end. Because I know. So do not fear. Because there was a fear that was natural, 
But there was a faith that was so deep and so convinced it could stand in the face and look dead in the face of the Roman Empire. And today, a couple thousand years later, there is no longer an emperor of Rome. But there is still a God who sits on his throne. And we serve the one who conquers and overcomes. Let me tell you what I think the real tragedy in all this is. This isn't to be just overly specific. But let me tell you that the, 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 the group that I think, but the, as Christians, we miss this. We miss the type of bold faith. We miss, we miss the type of faith that stands in the face of harm and boldness. Truthfully, I think we miss guys in this. We have created such an idea of a passive faith. Because there's there's words that we use to describe love. And love is a very, very dynamic word. A lot of times what we think is, okay, as as Christians, we just got to love people. Okay, let's just like hug everybody and give them like butterfly kisses, you know. And then, man, we're just going to be loving people. And that's true. But the type of love that the Bible calls us to is that we would have a, a, a love that so supersedes anything, that we would love anybody and everybody with a sacrificial love, with a love that confronts things at times, with a love that stands boldly for things at times, not because we think that we are the best people on planet Earth, but because we so deeply love and care for people. And love them so much, we can stand in the face, in our faith, of extraordinary persecution. And there has become such a pacification that I think guys by the tens and by the hundreds, and at this point by the thousands and the millions, have walked away from, have basically disengaged from their faith because we think that there is nothing here for me. Because it's too soft. If you read the Bible, you will find the most crazy, outrageous group of people. And I'm not saying this is exclusive towards guys. This has just been my experience as a guy, what I have seen, how this has interfaced with guys. This applies to everybody. Because there was a faith that was so strong, it could look the face of a lion dead in the eyes and not flinch. I was thinking about that. I was coming, we, I'm going to bring this whole thing to a close. There's a lot of application, but you're all smart people. You can figure that out. So I want to tell you a story about a guy who was impacted directly by this. And you can figure out and kind of hash out the implications in your community groups and as you drive home today. Um, there's a guy who, if you study church history, you've probably heard of. His name's Polycarp. Polycarp was one of the early church fathers. In fact, a couple, uh, a number of different people have had written about church, uh, Polycarp in the early church. It was a guy named Tertullian wrote about him, a guy named Jerome wrote about him. A bunch of different people wrote about this guy, Polycarp. But one of the things that, that's captured um, about Polycarp is Polycarp was, in fact, the bishop at Smyrna. Polycarp was the guy who was basically in charge of the church at Smyrna, as well as some other outlying churches around the area of Smyrna. Um, and Polycarp was actually a direct um, disciple of John. Polycarp probably lived from somewhere between, probably born somewhere between 70 AD-ish um, and died around 155, maybe 60 to 155, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, well, Polycarp, um, being the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp being a direct disciple of John, um, there broke out in about the year 155 an extraordinary persecution. About 150 actually broke out a, a huge persecution in the church. Polycarp's over the church of Smyrna who this letter is written to, who Jesus is saying, hey, there's going to be persecution. You're going to be jailed. There's going to be persecution. You're going to be jailed. 
Polycarp, who's in Smyrna at the time, um, talks to some of his people. They had to hear word that, you know, oh my gosh, you know, the Romans are going to come, the Romans are going to come, the Romans are going to come, because they, the Romans basically were upset because they, Christians said that, hey, we don't believe that your God's God, we believe that our God's God, and we're not going to be wavering on that. Romans came, and as they were on their way, they basically convinced Polycarp, Polycarp, why don't you just go out to the farm for a little while? Why don't you just go out to the rural parts? Why don't you go out to a farm? Stay out there till everything blows over and you can come back. We can continue on with charts. Polycarp says, okay, goes out. The Romans come in. Sure enough, they find where Polycarp was staying. Don't find Polycarp there, but they find a couple of Polycarp's people. Torture them till they give up Polycarp's location. Go and arrest him. And here's the funny thing. They went to arrest him. I think they were trying to, and this is kind of the, the, the way the early you know, church people would write about Polycarp's martyrdom. There's a whole account of this. They expected to find probably this, like, the strapping dude, this, you know, kind of like yoke dude, can, you know, back squat 550, you know, this, this, you know, this guy, great, great on leg day. Um, they find this dude in his 90s, and they almost feel bad. They're like, we're going to take you away, but Grandpa, can we help you up? You know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the understanding that you get. And they were trying to give Polycarp every opportunity to basically denounce the faith. And, they, you know, as they, as they were taking him, they said, you know, Polycarp, if you will just, if you will just take a little bit of, of incense and offer it to the emperor then, and, and offer it to the statue of the emperor, that means not even a lot, just a little bit, then we want, you know, we'll, we'll set you free. And he basically said no. So they marched him into this arena where Christians had already been killed that day. In front of the Roman proconsul. And the Roman proconsul says, Polycarp, if you will denounce the atheists. Now, here's what was funny about it. They thought Christians were atheists because everyone thought that the Roman emperor was God, and them denying that the Roman emperor was God basically meant that we thought our God is God, and they thought the Romans thought that their God wasn't God, so the Christians were the first atheists. If you can wrap your minds around that, okay? So we were first, you know? Anyway. So he says, if you'll denounce the atheists, then I'll set you free. <laughs> and I want you to imagine your granddad in this situation. Polycarp looks at the proconsul in the face, you know, Colosseum around him or whatever their, you know, arena was for the day, looks at it and points at all the people. And he says, I denounce you atheists. <laughs> You're like, Grandpa, that's, you know, you don't, you don't say that out loud. So he says, I'm going to give you one more opportunity. If you will simply burn a little bit of incense to our God, I'll set you free. And Polycarp, in the middle of the arena, looking the proconsul, the representative of the Roman government, dead in the face, knowing that if he says no, he is going to be burned at the stake that very same day looks at him and says, my God has been faithful to me and I have served him for the last 86 years. How could I deny him now? And Polycarp that day was stabbed and burned at the stake because there was a faith so strong that it could face certain death And not flinch. There was a faith that was so strong that Jesus would look at and say, I know what's going to happen. I know what you're facing. I know, and I have been there. 
And I don't want you to lose sight that this is not the end. So while you're in the middle of that, do not fear. There was a faith so strong, it could look a lion in the face and be eaten and not flinch. There was a faith back in the day so strong that you could be burned at the stake and not flinch. There was a faith so deep. There was a conviction so deep. There was a belief that was so convinced and so real that this was not the end, that there is a better place. There is a place where we will reign. There is a place where we will receive the victor's crown, that we will be seated with God. We will be with God in his glory, looking at our heavenly Father face to face, not because of the fact that we are good people, but because we realize that we are completely incapable of being good people. But we believe in the one God We believe in the one true living God who saw that and didn't ask us to prove our way into his good graces. We believe in the one true God who saw that, who sent his son to die for us because we are incapable of making our way into God's good graces and who asks us to trust him, to live for him because this is not our home. There was a faith so strong it overcame the Roman government and there is a faith so strong today that it still exists because the same spirit that lived inside of them lived inside of the apostles who all died for their faith that also lives inside of you and inside of me today. There is a faith and there was a faith so strong it could stare down imminent death and not flinch. Because there was a conviction so deep. There was a spirit so powerful. And I think, if we experience, if we live in that type of faith, unlock that type of faith, that dynamic, that trusting, that would change everything for us. Because we serve a God who says, I know how it's going to work out. I know what you're going through right now. I have been through what you're going through. But do not be afraid because this is not the end. And I pray that God turns us, God inspires us through the power of his Holy Spirit, creates in us a community that has that type of faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we know that we are sinful. We know that we fall short of you, our Heavenly Father. God, you are so perfect. You are so holy. You are so pure. You are so righteous. God, we can't stand in front of you on our own accord. So thank you for sending your one and only son, Jesus, to die for us. That we can live for you. That we can stand before you. That we can even right now in prayer go boldly before your throne and ask you that you would give us the same faith, the same compelling conviction, the same depth and clarity of conviction, the same exact confidence and courage powered not by our own resolve but powered simply by your Holy Spirit that no matter what we face in this life we know that you have put a spirit inside of us not of timidity or of fear but of discipline and power 
And so God, would you create inside of us a faith that you have created inside of generation after generation after generation that can stare in the face of certain persecution and oftentimes certain death and not flinch because we have a God who controls all things, knows all things, and at the same time knows that this is not our final resting place. So God, please, please, please turn us into a community with that type of a faith because we know that there once existed a faith so deep it could look at a lion in the face and not flinch. And God, I pray that that would happen with us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you guys so much for coming. Last week, just real quick before you leave, last week we talked about um, there's a resource, there's a verse-by-verse guide that can take you through Revelation if you want to. Those are on the resource table. Um, they cost us 10 bucks, so we're just going to you know, ask you to pay 10 bucks if you want one of those. We would love for you to go through the book of Revelation by yourself um, or in a community group at, at some point. So um, y'all have a wonderful rest of your weekend.